You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Well, good morning, everyone. So great to see you all here. Um, I am excited because today we're going to be starting a new sermon series going through the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians, which we've titled United in Christ. And um, one of the many, on that end, one of the many mysteries and miracles of the gospel is that it's capable of transcending the boundary lines of every single culture, demographic, and generation. More than that, it has the power to unify all people groups under one banner, the banner of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Jesus even prayed that this would be so before he went to the cross for our sins. John 17, 22 to 23, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may, be come, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So one of the the reasons Jesus willingly and humbly went to the cross and even fills us with his spirit today is so that through him, the church, this multi-generational and culturally diverse people of God could be one, perfectly one. And this isn't a call to uniformity where we all dress the same and look the same. That would be creepy. No, th- this, is, this is unity in diversity, right? Where, where people with all different backgrounds and gifts come together to form a whole. And again, this is important to Jesus. This is how the church, the, which is the people of God, the ecclesia, the gathering of the people of God. This is how we're meant to reflect and proclaim the life and love of God to the world by being unified together, which is why Ephesians 4.3 pleads with the church. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And Psalm 133.1 declares, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. Unfortunately, though, what we'll soon discover is that it seems like the members of the church in Corinth, to which 1 Corinthians was written, would have been unable to behold how good and pleasant it is. This is due to the fact that they were having a significant unity problem. Like so many churches today and throughout history, they were becoming divided within the church over many issues, some big ones and some petty ones. The biggest problem is that these issues of contention, these offenses they were feeling and their self-seeking desires, they, they had become more important to them than that which was supposed to unite them. And this divisiveness was not only causing quarrels and factions and and the exclusion of some believers, but was ultimately hindering their purpose of proclaiming God's love to the world, as well as their ability to simply genuinely grow and worship the Lord together. So what we'll find is that 1 Corinthians is a plea for this group of believers to come back 
to come back to focusing and centering their lives on the one who made them a community in the first place. It's an appeal to return to who they'd been saved and called and filled by the Spirit to be, that is united in Christ. So our prayer, our meaning us as pastors, us as leaders, our our prayer is that as we go through this series, that uh, we as a congregation will also be encouraged and challenged uh, by what it looks like to center every aspect of our lives around Jesus Christ, and in the same vein, that we'll learn and we'll grow in what it means to live our lives as part of his spirit-filled and united church. That in doing so, we would grow in our wisdom and desire to pursue that unity, that we would serve and love one another more and more, and we would seek to build up the body of Christ so that the world would know Jesus and that we are his. So it's going to be good. It's going to be very challenging and convicting, but it's going to be good. So let's, let's read through 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 1 all the way to 17. That's what we're going to be starting with this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 17. It says this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's the word of the Lord. So in, in, in these days, whenever we write emails to each other, or if we're being really old-fashioned, uh, writing letters, we usually sign our names at the end, Right? But ancient letters did the opposite. Back then, it was customary for the author to introduce themselves first and then acknowledge who they were writing to with a greeting. 
So having this information right off the bat is also important for us so that we can have a deeper context uh, and deeper understanding of the text. Who's writing it, who it's being written to is incredibly important. So right away we see that it's Paul, one of the foremost apostles and missionaries of the gospel in the early church. He is the one who introduces himself as the writer of this letter and that he's writing it to the church in Corinth. Now Corinth was a city in Greece, which had been almost completely destroyed by the Roman army at one time, but was then rebuilt by the Romans in 44 BCE, less than 100 years before Paul wrote this letter in approximately 57 AD. But yet in its short time under Roman colonization, Corinth had become an incredibly important port city. This is, this is especially due to its location and its proximity to Athens via the Isthmus of Corinth, which was the narrow stretch of land that connects the Peloponnese Peninsula to mainland Greece. And there's the map right there. So you can see Corinth there. It's um, just on the edge of the Corinthian Gulf, which is that inlet there. And then the uh, Isthmus of Corinth is that distance from Athens to Corinth, that little stretch of land right there. Isthmus is hard to say, if, if you couldn't tell. Um, <laughs> anyways, you can tell that its, its location allowed ships to unload cargo there. They would just come into, there, into the Corinthian Gulf and unload cargo there and load cargo there, instead of having to go all the way around the peninsula to Athens, which could be a, it's a long and dangerous route. So that's why Corinth became a really important port city after the Romans rebuilt it. And we can read in Acts 18 that Paul came into the city of Corinth after ministering in Athens. And so he probably went through that strip there. And uh, he spent, it says he spent a year and a half there. And at first it, it says he tried to preach the gospel to the Jews that were there. But since they wouldn't listen to him, uh, God gave him a vision to keep, keep preaching. And, and he began to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And as a result, many were saved and many were baptized, including an Italian couple named Aquila and Priscilla, whom Paul worked with in making tents as well. And Aquila and Priscilla would later disciple a missionary, an eloquent speaker named Apollos, which was mentioned in, in our First Corinthians passage this morning. Um, but eventually, while Paul's ministering there, and to Paul's delight, I'm sure, even some of the Jews were saved after all, including a man named Crispus, who is the ruler of the Jewish synagogue, and most likely uh, another man was saved as well, who is the ruler of the Jewish synagogue after him, and his name was Sosthenes, Sosthenes um, and he was most likely the very same Sosthenes whom Paul mentions in his greeting to the letter to the, to the Corinthians. And so, with all that being said, Paul obviously had a deep care and connection with this church community in Corinth. He was the first to be used by God to bring the gospel there. And because of this, the people would have known him well, right? He, having taught them, dined with them, served them, and loved them and taught them as brothers and sisters in Christ. This also explains why he reminds them right off the bat of his God-given call as an apostle, uh, because he's the one who planted this church there. So in, in other words, he has the authority from Christ himself and as their personal apostle to teach, correct, and rebuke them. He's reminding them of this. And this is the posture with which he writes to them, both with the authority of an apostle, 
but also with that deep care and concern as a brother in Christ. He calls them brethren later on. So he has that authority, but he's also speaking to them with love and care, right? Uh, in fact, after he wrote this letter, it says in 2 Corinthians that he also came to visit them again. And it was a painful visit, but he came to visit them again. And, and this is a big deal that he would do that because at that time, traveling was, was long, difficult, and, and often dangerous thing to do. And so for Paul to go out of his way to visit them again, to make sure they're doing well, again, shows that, that he loves them and that he cares for them and that he's concerned for them. Um, now, when Paul originally came into the city of Corinth, what he would have found was an urban city buzzing with commerce, with multiple cultures, and not surprisingly, idol worship. I have a picture of Corinth there. There it is. That's a drawing uh, based on the ruins of Corinth. It's a recreation, so that's probably what it would have looked like. Um, that's the city of Corinth. And then I also have a picture of a fountain if you wanted to go to the next one there. That's kind of a close-up. That's some ruins of the city of Corinth. It's a, it's a Corinthian fountain. So... You kind of get a picture of where Paul was, where he, how, where he was ministering. Um, I like seeing that kind of stuff. I don't know if you do. Um, so being both a Greco-Roman city and a port city, it brought the influence of many customs, the influence of many religions and cults from all over the Mediterranean area, which included, of course, Roman cults and workers' guilds, which venerated their emperors and Roman gods. They also had temples dedicated to Egyptian gods like Isis and, of course, Greek gods like Poseidon, which was the city's patron god. And both of, these, both of these make sense since they're the gods of the sea and the city is located on a seaport. This makes sense, right? They also had a notable temple dedicated to Apollo, the god of a whole bunch of things. In fact, it confused the Greeks what he was the god of because he became the god of so many things. Um, the ruins are shown here in, in the next picture. If you want to throw that up there, that's like a quarter of, of the Temple of Apollo that's left. Uh, but like all temples of idols, they just eventually crumble, right? Um, so that's the Temple of Apollo. Um, we can also read in Acts 18 that there was definitely a Jewish synagogue there. Uh, and the Jews were probably located there because Emperor Nero had actually kicked out all of the Jews from Rome, and so they had to find settlements in various Roman colonies, and they would have ended up in colonies like Corinth. Um, but one of the most renowned temples in that city, and one which we'll have to bring up, unfortunately, more than a few times during this series, since it seemed to have had a lasting negative influence on the church in Corinth, was the temple to the goddess Aphrodite, which was located on the summit of the Acrocorinth, which was a hill overlooking the city. And I have a picture of that as well. There's the hill. The temple was up there. And um, hundreds and thousands of people would daily make their way to that temple. Uh, because according to ancient Greek geographer Strabo, this temple was said to have had up to a thousand courtesans, who were all dedicated within that temple to quote-unquote assist men and even women in their worship of the goddess of beauty, fertility, and sexual love. I won't get into that any more than I have to. In light of this and other things, Corinth was known throughout the Mediterranean as being a city of moral disrepute and hedonism. And for those of you who don't know, uh, hedonism is basically the pursuit of pleasure. 
And it was often directly associated with the Greek philosophy of dualism, which is kind of like Gnosticism, which holds that the spiritual self and the material body are separate and opposite. Okay? So one being good, the spiritual, and one being evil, the physical self. And so many citizens held the dualistic belief that since the body is corrupt anyways, then why not indulge its desires and urges, right? And, and worship at the temple of Aphrodite. On that end, pervasive within the culture as well would have been the Greek ideals of individualism, philosophy, moral freedom, and distrust of authority, among other things. Those might sound familiar to you because they are ideals and values which are basically the secular ideals of our own society today. And in fact, what we'll find is that these forms of idol worship and especially these pervasive cultural ideals were still having a largely negative influence upon the Corinthian church and therefore their ability to serve and worship God together in unity. And we'll see this influence at play as we go through 1 Corinthians, and we'll find that some within the church were committing sexual immorality, some were questioning Paul's authority, some were denying the resurrection of the physical body because it's evil, right? That's the dualism. Many were asserting their individualistic rights and moral freedoms with, the, with little regard to or even at the expense of others. On that end, the Apostle Paul had received oral and, and written reports about all of this sin and all the goings-on that, that, had, that had been happening in the church in Corinth. And so this is why he's writing this letter to them. Again, he's concerned for them, and he's making a loving plea for them to, to come back to Jesus and to who they were saved and called to be together, united in Christ. So, it's no surprise then, now we have all that context, it's no surprise then that, that even in, in, in Paul's introduction to the letter, he begins it already by reminding them who they are now as, as unified followers of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, 2-3, it says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he's using these sanctified together, ours, right? He's using these words already. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, in his, in his seemingly just general greeting to them, most of us would just kind of fly by that and be like, yeah, that's nice, right? But he's already hinting at the subject matter of the rest of the letter, reminding them that they've been sanctified in Christ, which means set apart from the world for God. And furthermore, that they've also been joined together with everyone else who follows Jesus. So he's already pointing out to them that together, all believers worship and call upon the same Lord, that they've all been saved by the same grace and all hope for the same peace, which comes from the same God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. And so again, he's, he's telling them right away what he's going to be trying to call them back to for the rest of the letter, that in Christ they've been united with God and therefore united with one another. He then goes on to expand on these two realities in the, in the form of thanksgiving and appeal, respectively. So he starts with the thanksgiving portion. First of all, he writes from 1 Corinthians 1, 
He says to them, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's typical in an ancient letter that one would follow their greeting with a short paragraph of thanksgiving, kind of like, again, if we were writing a letter to someone or emailing someone, we would say, how's it going? I'm thankful to hear that you're doing well or that you got a new job or whatever, right? Um, so they do that as well. And, and, and even though the church in Corinth, as, as I've been saying, had a lot of issues, which Paul's going to be addressing, he still doesn't skip this part of thanksgiving, and that's, and that's important. Right? He's, he still finds some good stuff to thank God for. But again, what's interesting in, is that in the midst of Paul's thanksgiving for them, you can still tell what's on his mind, because he also seems to be hinting at some of the topics of contention and disunity, which he's going to be bringing up later in the letter. Things like the misuse of spiritual gifts, but he thanks them that he has them, right? And, and things like human wisdom and knowledge versus godly wisdom and the contention over the bodily resurrection upon Jesus' return. But still, again, Paul's still able to see some positives in these areas, areas too. So really, he, we can learn from him here. He's, he's modeling the right way to correct someone in love, Okay. He begins by encouraging them and highlighting the good things that God is doing in them, basically showing and reminding them of his love and care for them before rebuking and addressing the difficult conversations. This is important because the truth is people will only receive correction from other people who've, who've first shown they truly care about them, right? I'm not going to receive correction from someone who just, just tells me all the things that I'm bad at, Right? No, I, I, I would listen to someone who's like, look, you're doing awesome in this area and, and it's so good to see this, but, and I love you, but you need to correct yourself in this area, right? That, that's someone that I would listen to. And that's what Paul's doing here. So, so Paul does this. He thanks God that the result of Jesus' grace upon them was being revealed in their speech, in their hunger for knowledge, in their proclamation of the gospel, in their abundance of spiritual gifts, and, and in the certainty that God will sustain them and remain faithful to perfect them for the day of Jesus Christ. Which is really the, the hope for all of us as Christians, right? That no matter what correction we need, God is still faithful. God will perfect us for the day of Jesus Christ. Speaking of which, Paul mentions the name of Jesus Christ eight times in his introduction to the letter alone. I think that Jesus is important to him, right? Uh, it's a hint, hint for them, a pretty obvious one, that Jesus uh, is not only the source of their grace and their salvation, he's not only their future hope, but also that for them to fulfill their calling in the present, he needs to be the center of their lives. As Tom Wright notes, Paul isn't talking about the problems at the moment. God, he's saying God called them in the past, God equips them in the present, and God will complete the whole process in the future. The story of the Christian life has a shape, and Jesus is its shaper at every point. So Paul's reminding them of that here. To sum it all up, he then reminds them once again 
of their status and position as saints, that they were saved and called to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ into a unified partnership with him. A unity which should have then been visibly reflected within their lives and within their community. Unfortunately, as Warren Wiersbe writes, their practice was not in accord with their position. As believers, the church in Corinth had been positioned for unity in Christ, but they were anything but. And so this is when Paul finally addresses the main purpose of his letter. He gets right down to it. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17, I'll read this again. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. We don't know who Chloe's people are, but they're obviously part of Corinth. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul's desire here is to obviously reinstate unity and harmony within a church that's become divided. Because instead of agreeing with one another and being of the same mind, they were quarreling with one another. They're fighting with each other. And one of the reasons we find out is so immature, right? It shows their immaturity. The, the, it was concerned with what teacher they followed. Are you kidding me? Right? So some were claiming Paul was better, and so they followed him. Some were claiming Apollo, Apollos was better, and so they followed him, probably because he was noted in Acts for being a great, eloquent speaker, which Paul wasn't. He admits it here. Some were claiming to follow Cephas, and we know him more commonly as Peter, the Apostle Peter. And it's possible that, that those claiming to follow him in that community were the Jewish Christians among them, but we don't know for sure. But then some are even claiming to be superior to them all. And they were claiming that they followed Christ only. But then Paul notes, if they were truly following Christ, they wouldn't be divided. Because Christ isn't divided. So how could his people also be divided? And then Paul expresses thanksgiving that he only baptized a few of them because it seems they were even bragging or boasting about which leader did their baptisms, which is inconsequential. It's not about who did the baptism. Baptism is important, but it's not about who, who did it. It's about who you're being baptized into, into new life as a disciple of Christ. Christ. 
So bottom line is, is that when they stopped making their lives about following Jesus and, and more about elevating these leaders, they became arrogant. They became divided. And if we're honest, we have a tendency to do this today as well. They're saying, Pastor so-and-so is better than, than this pastor. Pastor Blair is better than Pastor Brad. It's true. No, I'm just kidding. Love you, Brad. It's not true. See how dumb that is, though? When I said that, I was like, that's so dumb, right? We work together. But, you know, we have a tendency to do this, especially with the internet. Wow, with the internet, right? We can find any leader we like, whether it's one who speaks well or one who agrees with the same things we do. And then we elevate them in our minds as superior to every other teacher. And we say, well, I follow this one. I follow John MacArthur, or I follow Tim Keller. I follow Tim Mackey, or, or John Calvin, or John Wesley, or Rick Warren. And we elevate them, right? As, as, if we're, as if they're competing with one another, as if they're the be-all, end-all. We wonder why the local pastor can't be like them. I should, I should note here, though, that, that we're going to return to this issue of, of these factions between leaders again later in the letter. And so, so we're not going to get into that too much today, though it's certainly a warning for us, isn't it, to make sure that we're not comparing or elevating or exalting certain teachers or pastors or celebrity pastors over and above Jesus or even other pastors, and especially not over our mandate to serve and love one another in his name. Especially because, you know what? Every single leader will eventually fail you. Because they're not perfect. They're not the Savior. And they weren't crucified for you. Right? Jesus was. And so his word needs to be our foundation and our focus. Any good pastor will point you to Jesus. And if they're pointing you to themselves, that's a warning. But that's the whole point and plea here. He's, he's trying to point them back to the gospel. He's saying, I didn't come for you to worship me, exalt me. I came to tell you the gospel. And then he's saying, if, if we're truly united with Christ, then as his saints, we should also then be united together, agreeing with each other of one mind and the same judgment. Again, not as clones, but all focused and centered on the one who unites us, on Jesus, having his mind among us, which is one of humility and sacrificial love for others. So this is the only way that we're going to be effective at proclaiming the gospel and making an impact in the world when we're united in Christ, when we're working together and building each other up in the faith. The unfortunate reality, though, is that historically and, and generally speaking, I'm not pointing at any, anyone out in, in the church, just generally speaking of the church in general, Christians have more in common sometimes with the church in Corinth than we'd like to admit. In fact, Craig Blomberg writes, Church should be a place where people who have no other natural reason for associating with each other to come together in love. 
What a beautiful picture that is, right? But instead, it often remains the most segregated aspect of Western society. The disunity of the church of Jesus Christ remains one of the greatest scandals which compromises its witness today. This is a big problem. For the world's watching us. And as the world watches us, what do they often see? They often see that we often tend to focus more on what separates us than what unites us. That we're prone to argue or split over our differences rather than using our diversity to make us stronger. We're known from jumping from one church to the next at any sign of conflict or like self-seeking consumers in a shopping mall. Even individualizing our faith and in the same vein, placing then our personal desires, our personal opinions, our personal grievances over and above God's call for us to forgive, to serve, and build up the body of Christ, which is what Paul will describe as the church later in the letter. I've personally heard some people tell me, and I'm always floored when they tell me this. They tell me this with certainty too. They tell me that they don't even need the church to follow Jesus and live out his call in their lives. This is, to put it bluntly, self-centered and false. Because to be unified with Christ is to be unified with other believers. We're saved into the same union, the same family, the same kingdom, and filled by the same Holy Spirit. In other words, to follow Jesus means you are part of his church. It means you're significant to the church. And that without you and your gifts, the church isn't complete or able to function properly. Conversely, without the local church, you won't be able to fully function in your calling either. And so we can't be divisive. As Andrew Art writes, I, I cannot be what I have, call, I have been called to be in Christ apart from you. And you cannot be what you have been called to be apart from me. And no one can be what they have been called to be apart from all the others the Lord has called. For they all are how the total Christ, to steal a phrase from Augustine, is present to enrich and bless and save our lives. To be united with Christ is to be united together in Christ. This is part of the good news of the gospel. And it's a significant and important calling, which we're going to be encouraged and challenged to grow in as we go on this journey through Paul's letter to the Corinthians together. On that end, nothing reminds us more of this truth than when we receive communion together, which we're going to do in a moment, but I wanted to read this passage first. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So as we place our focus upon Jesus Christ, we place our hearts upon him and partake of his body and blood, which was broken and shed for the sins of us all. Let us be reminded that though we are many, we are united 
by him. 